I couldn't be more excited about our latest episode of Soundtracking, recorded with the one and only Cliff Martinez at his home in Topanga Canyon, California. Cliff's name's come up on countless occasions since we started the podcast, not least in the company of Steven Soderbergh, Nicholas Winding Refn, Todd Phillips and Drew Pierce, all of whom have employed the expert services of the former Red Hot Chili Pepper to score their movies. Now, we'll hear plenty more about all these fine gentlemen and get the inside line on Cliff's work on films such as Six Lies and Videotape, Drive, Only God Forgives, War Dogs and Hotel Artemis. As always, we'll play plenty of music throughout the conversation too, starting with his opening cue from Solaris entitled Is that what everybody wants? I've got to say thank you so much for allowing me to come to your amazing house recording studio up here in what feels like the top of the world. It's I can see why you why this is an inspiring place for you. Yeah, I like to think that the environment uh, improves the writing, the creative process. The biggest change, my old place was kind of like I worked in the bedroom and yeah. the living room. There were microphones throughout the house. Here, I actually have a space, so. I've discovered the the majesty of of microphones and human beings and musicians, you know. Yeah, yeah. Because I I used to have a big problem with depression, and and now I find it really difficult to get depressed up here. I, I can see why. It's a challenge. I can see why. We've talked a lot about you and your music in our what are we are. I think we're about 140 episodes now of this podcast. Not only through some of the directors that you've worked with, but also just when people talk about scores that have resonated with them and, and and the way that the score the synergy with the score and the kind of pictures and stuff so you've you've appeared on this podcast quite a number of times already oh, good. so it's I, nice to get straight to the horse's mouth I, I guess i guess that's good well yeah <laughs> you've you've come to the right horse 
What can I ask first of all? Because you, you were, you know, musician, and then moved into to to writing music for for picture. Really, what was the the choice and the reason behind wanting to explore that world? Uh, I suppose inadvertently it was a fear of extinction. I was <laughs> <laughs> I was a drummer. I was playing with the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and on our first album, the producer brought in a drum machine, and which didn't go over very well with the rest of the band, but he thought he would make an ally out of me and suggested that I program it. It was a fearsome thing, it, but I kind of felt like, oh, so this was uh, 83, I'm yeah. guessing. So it was kind of the beginning of the electronic music revolution, but I thought, yeah, I'm about to go the way of the brontosaurus, I think. <laughs> um, the drums are probably, the during the 80s, the drumming style was had moved away from the Keith Moons and the... Yeah. Mitch Mitchells and was kind of getting to be like boom, crack, boom. And it was perfect style timing for for drummers to be replaced by machines. But at the same time, I was I was intrigued by the drum machine. I thought, oh, I can do stuff that I, I could never play. Yeah. So I was kind of fascinated by the music technology of the early 80s. So I think that's what got the ball rolling, a combination of fear of extinction combined with <laughs> A fascination with uh, the music technology of the period. I think my first gizmo, electronic music gizmo, was a sampling drum machine, and I'd invite friends over to that my apartment, and we'd have um, a microphone, like an open mic night, yeah. at my house. But it was like who could make the rudest body noise into the mic, <laughs> and then put it into the drum machine and make a beat out of it. So that's kind of where it started. I thought, oh, I'm, I'm brilliant. I'm just like doing this stuff that's never been done before. Didn't know where to apply it. The band wasn't really the right venue. And then I saw an episode of Pee Wee's Playhouse, mm -hmm. and I knew the director, sort of, uh, Stephen Johnson, then director. He did directed a bunch of interesting rock videos, like yeah. Peter Gabriel's Sledgehammer. And Amazing. Big time. And, yeah. and he was directing Pee Wee's Playhouse. So I sent him a tape of my musical flatulent sound collages and said, how about I, you know, how about I do an episode of Pee-wee's Playhouse? So I got hired for one episode, and that's what got the ball rolling, because I think Pee-wee's Playhouse was in its third season. I'd seen the previous shows. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite shows, it was a very subversive, supposedly for children's show, but it had this kind of adult yeah. angle going on. So I was familiar with the show, and they sent me a rough cut of the one show that I was to score, and I thought, oh, they've sent me the worst episode. Not realizing that these rough cuts yeah. are incomplete. The mm -hmm. sound isn't finished, the editing isn't finished, and most importantly, I think, the music is not there. Mm. And then as I began to write music, I thought, oh yeah, I'm, I'm just saving the whole show. It's just like, now it works. <laughs> so I got this really big head. I already had a big head about what I was doing with the rude body noise collages. <laughs> but when I started to see how the, the whole film and story improved with music, that's what got me hooked. And it wasn't until sometime later that I realized, well, that's just what the music does. The mm. music can pull everything together. That's how I got hooked. After seeing what the music did for the picture, I was like, oh, oh, and I got paid a lot more money than I ever got paid <laughs> doing, uh, playing drums. So that was a little bonus, yeah. unexpected bonus as well. You know, were you a film fan? Did you grow up watching lots of films? Was, was, did you, do you immerse yourself in the film world? And was, was score and film music something that you, 
paid attention to, that you enjoyed, that you listened to? I wasn't a cinephile, I guess. Yeah. I wasn't a film connoisseur by any stretch. And I was dimly aware of music in films. I had a few favorite movies that many years later I realized the reason they might have been some of my favorite films is because of the music, such as The Day the Earth Stood Still, mm -hmm. score by Bernard Herrmann. Ugly for a few dollars more, Scorbane and your Morricone. Unlike books and uh, stand-up comedy, or I mean like books and stand-up comedy, films are something you don't really watch more than once, usually. But those films mm. I watched repeatedly over the years. I thought, well, that's, oh, because it's music. Because it's music-driven, because the music is so important, and music is something you can listen to repeatedly. So I guess I had an awareness of it. Yeah. But I was far from a, you know, a film nerd. And then stepping into to scoring your first feature film, how did that come about? And at what stage were you part of that process? And what were the conversations that you had? Was, was Steven Soderbergh the first film that you... Was that the first film? Yeah, six, the, six, the six, first six. scoring job was the Pee Wee's Playhouse thing. So that was the demo tape that I walked around <laughs> with. Like a cassette, and anybody that would listen would get one. 
And um, a sound editor named Mark Mangini had Steven Soderbergh yeah. sleeping on his couch. Yeah. And at the same time, he asked me to come in and do some work my weird sound effects, collage magic on a film called Alienation. Mm-hmm. His then roommate, Steven Soderbergh, walked in, and before we were even properly introduced, Steven started making comments about the music and how it worked with the picture. And I could tell he wasn't a musician. He didn't seem to be coming at it from a musical point of view, but he had a pretty sharp sense of what worked and why. And that's how we met. Uh, Years later, Steven said he hired me because I was the only film composer he knew at the time. (laughs) And maybe that was, you know, I I like to think it's because we kind of hit it off. Sometimes people would much rather work with somebody that they get along with that's a mediocre talent than a genius who's a pain in the ass. Because they just say yes to everything. I was a nice guy back then. Remember that sort of the opportunity that was there in front of you, Dan, of going, This is a full this is a feature film I'm about to create the music for and went on and continues to be a, a hugely kind of influential film. And you know, in terms of both of you, I guess we're at that early stage of, of something really exciting of new experiences in a new world and, and what those conversations were about what was expected. Because neither of you had, had that much experience in that world yet. True. So Stephen, I think, had a, um, a unique and very personal approach to filmmaking and the role of music in the film. And I, I didn't know any better. It wasn't until years later I realized, well, actually, some directors want more music. They want more notes on the page. They want uh, the music to have, a, I guess, a more active role in the film. Stephen's philosophy was um, be unobtrusive. And he wanted the music to be very simplistic. He was the role model was Brian Eno, which I thought was a kind of a tough thing for me to because at, at that point, remember, if I couldn't hit it with a stick, I you know no music would result. Um, so to be robbed of my you know my rhythmic expertise and do ambient music was was a challenge.
back then, Stephen was involved. He'd come over to the house and listen to the music, and sometimes he'd even sit on the piano bench, and we'd play together on the keyboard. But the mission was to be kind of ambient electronic because our, our budget couldn't do anything else yeah. but do computer-generated music. And I don't think anybody knew what Sex, Lies, and Videotape would become. I was aware that it was a, a very low-budget film with not a lot of studio muscle or anything behind it. I think everybody involved knew it was a good film, but nobody anticipated that it would, because it kind of invented its own audience. It kind of invented the independent art film audience. Yeah. I guess my sense was that it would not find a large audience. It was too cerebral. It was too, I don't know, indie flavored. There was something about it that just, I knew it was good, but I didn't think it was commercial. But it kind of defined commerciality on its own terms and, and that was unexpected to all of us and yeah. I, I think to Stephen as well. to work in either on a film or with a director on a project? For many years, the projects chose me. Um, it wasn't the other way around. It's only, I guess, since really 2011 with Contagion and Drive kind of coming out within a week of each other. Was that a week of each other, was it? Yeah, they're, they... Wow. I, I think Drive was first and then Contagion a week later. It wasn't until then that, that the phone started ringing and there was enough demand for what I do that I could actually afford to be selective. So prior to that, there were, you know, all you had to do was say, uh, yeah. would you like to score my film? And the answer <laughs> would be yes. Now it's, now there's a few other questions. <laughs> How did the, um, I mean, you mentioned Drive and the synergy between all those things of that film, the aesthetic, the visuals, the score, the contemporary music, the sound design as well is just perfect synergy, I think, everything about that film, the performances, you know, is wonderful synergy. How did you come to meet Nicholas and work with him and, and how was Drive presented to you as a project? I think it started with um, a project called Lincoln Lawyer. It was a Lakeshore Films mm -hmm. project. Um, the head of Lakeshore Music was... Brian McNellis, he was a friend of Adam Siegel's who was producing Drive. And Adam came to, to Brian and said, I think we need a composer for this film. And Brian recommended me, I'm not, not sure why, but I guess, I don't know. I, I was fresh in his memory. I just worked yeah. on Lincoln Lawyer. And um, they did a promotional video of me playing the Bache Crystal, which is kind of this unusual experimental instrument. Yeah. And Brian showed Adam 
this video of me playing the crystal. He goes, oh, well, that's that's kind of me. I'll show this to Nicholas. And Nicholas saw it. He goes, oh, yeah, let's let's meet this guy. <laughs> but I think my favorite instrument is the Bachet crystal. That usually is a lot of fun to play. Get a lot of ideas from that. That's kind of the go-to instrument when I'm uh, styming, have writer's block, and uh, just want to do something for fun. Sounds like this. they knew something about me. I had all the Soderbergh films and a few other film credits. So they knew who I was, sort of. And then we met and um, Nicholas, who's from uh, Denmark, turned me on to like the best sushi restaurant in LA that I'd never even heard of. So I was kind of impressed with his taste and judgment. <laughs> and then I saw the film. Which really sold it, because I don't usually get that. So you might get a script, you get a conversation. But this was a whole package. They had gotten all the way, and if I do see a film, it'll be a rough cut. This was like a locked picture, so it was like a done deal. Oh, it was wow. A, it was a finished, polished project. And other than the music, it was basically drive without, you know, the permanent film score. So it was a good, solid movie. And then when I saw that, I just fell in love with it. It's like, oh, so not only do you know the good sushi, sushi restaurants... Yeah. You're a pretty capable director. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it was. I didn't require a lot of thinking. I just fell in love with the picture. By that point as well, had were all the the needle drops in there as well, or was that? Only... Yeah, yeah. And actually, the needle drops were a small point of contention among. I, don't know, I think there were like four product, production en entities that yeah. Nicholas had to answer to. And at that time, I, I think in hindsight, that those songs were anticipating a, tr a musical trend mm -hmm. that was probably underway in Europe had not hit the States. Yeah. That's my own theory. throwback oh, wow. music. So I remember that was, one of, that was one of the first questions. I was in a room with Nicholas and Adam, and uh, after I saw the movie, uh, Adam or Nicholas says, so what'd you think about those songs? And normally nobody would even ask my, that's just a whole nother department. Yeah. Chooses, licenses, negotiates, usually not my job, but I was asked and I could tell that there was like, it was an important answer because there was some disagreement about whether the songs were cool or not. Yeah. And I said, I like the songs. And yeah. I thought at the time, 
I thought they were, they um, personified Nicholas's personal taste and it gave a musical identity to, to the score that I thought was really good. I said, I th think the songs are, you've made a great bunch of choices. I'm giving you a night call to tell you how I feel. I want to drive you through the night down the hills. obvious thing that I think a lot of directors would have done was, was to have thrown score at that and instead it's the commentary for the, the sports match that's going on and there's just one tiny little piece of score in there but it just elevates everything and it just it's just really clever I think it's the kind of that's what I like about Nicholas's filmmaking is he takes out all those kind of obvious tricks that most people would use I think. Yeah he often had no music for the action business yeah. the, the busy stuff yeah um soderbergh's another one that like where i learned the value of uh, of where not to place the music yeah because when it does enter sex lies and videotape for example had like one piece of music per reel per for every 20 minutes and it wasn't until i saw it in the theater that i went and saw it you know in, in context of a watching the film end to end and i realized wow when the music comes in it's really making a statement because they're so such a small amount of it. Yeah. But um, yeah, quite true. And Nicholas is also very um, sound-centric as well. The gloves crinkling. Yeah. You know, you can kind of hear the toothpick sliding in between Brian Gosling's teeth. I mean, he's got, he's really got an ear for detail. And uh, he's also very astute about um, where to place sound. And, and um, again, these are things that you would have to see the film without those things to appreciate them yeah. when, they, when they finally are in there. Was it an easy film to score? I guess it was because uh, it was a locked picture, which I, I think it's the only one I've ever worked on where they hired me at that point yeah. when the, all the editing was complete. So I didn't have to chase the cut around. Nothing got, no scenes got extended or, or um, truncated. And also five weeks, I think, is the shortest time span I've had to complete a feature film project. Wow. So there wasn't a lot of room for experimentation or self-doubt or second takes or alternate approaches. So in that sense, yeah, it was like your first impulse kind of got approved because yeah. there wasn't, you know, Nicholas liked it because there wasn't enough time to not like it. Mm -hmm. 
So, yeah. so in that regard, I guess it was yeah. a little smoother than your average project. ideal scenario of coming on board to a film at what stage is the film at i think my favorite scenario has been the repeat customers that the nicholas's and the soderbergs because i like how you refer to them as repeat customers yeah they're uh <laughs> they're the only people that ever come to you when the project is in a script stage and mm -hmm. you've got all this time to think about it and if you want to write something fine, if you want to discuss it, you've got all this time to experiment and think about things. Normally the process is the film has been shot, they begin to edit it, they begin to try some temporary music in it, and then maybe some of my film music will get in there in a, in a rough cut, and uh, the director will look over the, the picture editor's shoulder and goes, well, that's, that works, who, who did that? You know, that's this guy, that's this knucklehead Cliff Martinez. They go, well, let's, let's bring him, is he cheap? Yeah. And, uh, and that's how I get hired. Nicholas and Steven, they, they just wanna work with me. And another benefit to working with the, the, the repeat customers is, is that they wanna do something different. Yeah and uh, they'll take you along with it. Like, you know, Stephen went from Sex, Lies, and Videotape, whatever, you, I don't know how you categorize that as a romantic comedy, into a period thriller in yeah. Kafka, which like, no one would hire me for that, but Stephen did because he didn't know any better, I guess. <laughs> but he wanted to do something different and he took me along for the ride. So that's another thing is that other people will hire you because they like something they've heard you do before. Yeah. And to one degree or another, they probably want you to repeat yourself somewhat. Whereas the repeat guys, I'm doing something new and different and you should do the same. However, Nicholas always says that and then does something that's actually got a lot of shared similarities yeah. with, with his previous work. Steven goes in a, often goes in very disparate Every film directions. Every yeah, you know, kind of then Solaris and Traffic and Contagion yeah. and I rewatched Con Contagion, I hadn't seen it in ages and the score is wonderful in the way that you kind of combine that I guess the electronic sort of beat of things, then you have this beautiful piano that has melody over the top of it at places as well, which kind of just, that sort of unification of those two elements of music, I think, together just works really perfectly with that film. Was that, was that a, an easy or a tricky film to get the sound right? That was tricky. Stephen, I have a, there's a long gestation period with Stephen. Uh, I got a script, had some conversations. He sent me some music. The studio was also wanted to be very hands-on. They sent me music. And I think all told, probably the scoring process went on for about three months. So yeah, it was pretty challenging.
And um, generally, Stephen's films come out of the director's cut. They come out of, they go from dailies to a, to a first assembly, and not a lot of things change. Mm-hmm. Usually he's, he's very decisive. He's quick to make up his mind and slow to change it, with the exception of Contagion. That really got transformed a lot. They did some reshooting. It kind of went from, it had elements of a big uh, epic disaster film. There mm-hmm. was some big scene shot of rioting in the streets and stuff. And then at some point, Stephen kind of decided it should be more of a psychological drama and it became more of a talking heads movie. So it underwent the biggest editorial transformation of any Soderbergh film I'd worked on. And it was fun to watch because I wouldn't, I don't know if I'd use the word troubled, but it it was interesting to see Project shift that much, yeah. one of Soderbergh's, and sh- then shift for the better. Yeah. And him make a, a, you know, a much more, a much better, much more watchable film. So the music department had to roll with the punches too. There were, <laughs> yeah. there were a lot of changes and, and they shifted gears quite a bit and I had to do likewise. Yeah. of traffic that was really difficult i wrote a lot of terrible music for traffic before i wrote anything that was good how do you know if something's terrible steven usually says so (laughs) he'll come over and say oh that's that's great Uh, what movie is that for (laughs) 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 and i think one of the big challenges was um steven uses a temporary music differently than most people. Most people want you to kind of imitate Mm -hmm. to some degree or another what's in the temp score, some element of it. Some people are are more attached to the temp music than others. Steven has 0.0 attachment to the temp music, but he puts it in there to give you some inspiration. Yeah. Contagion, for example, he put in... um, uh, Battle of Algiers, okay, an yeah. older Ennio Marconi yeah. film, and there's not much in Contagion that resembles that. that. Yeah, and I couldn't write like that if I wanted to.
Hill, he put in a whole bunch of John Williams, which is like, Stephen, you really picked the wrong composer if that's <laughs> wow. what you want. He goes, well, I don't want that. It's just, <laughs> it's just there to inspire you. So Traffic that's had a lot of stuff that was really um, kind of not what I do. Yeah. And it was extreme, minimal stuff. It was like, uh, there'd be like a three minute scene of, of one note. <laughs> and I go, okay, well, I guess he wants something super stark and I gotta think of how do you make one note compelling for three minutes. So I knew he wanted something stark and minimalistic, yeah. which, which is what it was, but how to make music that, that, that is that naked uh, be interesting and engaging and dramatic when it needed to be was a bit of a challenge. So the films that, where it's more about, um, I guess, sound design mm. uh, than it is about composition are a bigger challenge because when you're experimenting with things, there's not a lot of correlation between successful results and hours spent and calories burned. You can, you can work really, really hard, hours on end, and come up with like terrible music, and, and I did. But eventually it, it got really good. I thought it was a very cool score. And kind of the one that has a direct connection, I think, to Sex, Lies, and Videotape. Mm. It was a very Soderberghian-styled score. just throwing film titles at you but I just there's so many films I want to speak to you about that you've worked on. I'm gonna go back to Nicholas Winding Refn and and Only God Forgives. I can't imagine where you started with that with regards to or what the conversations that you had with Nicholas about what he was looking for for a score for that. Only God Forgives was um, the follow-up to Drive which I had no preparation for but for Only God Forgives Nicholas sent me a script. Yeah. The thing that was great about working with uh, 
Nicholas is that he kind of includes you as a junior filmmaker. He was asking me about casting choices and would tell you how the shoot was progressed. He would invite you to the shoot. Yeah. So he kind of treats you as a equal somewhat. Doesn't mean he, you know, acts on your suggestions. <laughs> yeah. Unless they're kind of within your realm, unless they're within the music department, I guess. But um, we talked about it a lot, and the talking didn't yield very much because I think it was a fairly improvisational film because I saw the script and people talked. There were there were conversations, there was dialogue, there were storylines, mm-hmm. and then I saw it and it was kind of an abstract, dialogue-free silent, it was a silent movie. movie yeah. It was like a slideshow. And I said, Nicholas, what happened to all this? I thought people were going to talk and, you know, there would be conversation. He goes, yeah, I, you know, kind of went in a different direction. So I think what that did, even more so than Drive, it, it kind of put bigger, broader spotlight on the music. The music, I thought, had a larger role. It actually had to explain or pretend that there's a storyline or yeah. pretend that there's something, there's some subtext going on when there might not even be any. favorite scenes, music scenes, is uh, the music isn't that great, but I, I like to evaluate music in terms, film music, in terms of its what it does for the film, mm-hmm. not necessarily how well it does as a standalone listening experience. But there's one scene where um, I think the uh, the policeman, they corner the, the guy who knows where somebody that they're looking for is, and his lips move, but you don't hear anything. Yeah. And I called up Nicholas immediately and said, Okay, there's talking there. I can see his lips moving. <laughs> Where is the talking? And he goes, well, he couldn't pronounce um, Angel of Vengeance. He kept calling it Angel of Vengeance. And I didn't want it to be comical, so I just got rid of it. And I said, all right. I love that. So the music actually kind of like, 
it all kind of worked as if it was in intended that way. Mm -hmm. But it, of course, the whole thing was, you know, he was kind of winging it and improvising, n knowing that the music would pick up the slack. So I think there were a lot of things about that. I think it was really kind of the birth of uh, a big role for the music department. Yeah. There's a, I forget how many minutes of music. There's a lot of it. Uh, Only God Forgives is the first film where there were like nine-minute cues, you know. <laughs> the music just went on and on. And Do you like that opportunity of... Yeah, of, I think of, so. At of... first it's intimidating, but now I do like it because, yeah, yeah I'd, I'd rather be... I'd rather have the music be in the spotlight than be out in the parking lot and just doing <laughs> yeah. like... 15 second transitional pieces of music like television. It's mm. like I like having a big, fat, juicy role. And Nicholas is one of those few directors that's courageous enough to cut the scenes long, knowing that Cliff uh, will make it all work mm. or not. <laughs> <laughs> documentary about Nicholas though as well yeah that was that was beautiful documentary is a completely different beast when it comes to filmmaking but it really felt like the music was coming from a place of your understanding and knowing of him as a character and sort of telling us quite a bit about him as a character rather than it being a structural or narrative thing yeah I think so I think it was a more um, thematic mm. you know there was theme and variation yeah. more so than than uh, other films but also it was you know behind the scenes I imagine Nicholas was telling Liv what to do or not do but basically I answered to her and she had a different sensibility than yeah. Nicholas she, she wanted music flavored music mm -hmm. at all times and I think that's why it's kind of a strong score is because it is um, the a more theme driven score yeah and the theme is was a little less cryptic it was it's basically about Nicholas very cool film. I thought, you know, it really showed him with his guard down because occasionally I get, you know, a glimmer of that that insecure side of yeah. him. And, and that film really kind of put it all out there, which I thought was endearing and cool. I was terrified when I first, the first time I interviewed him. I, I was so intimidated by him the first time I interviewed him. He, he has been tough because he's taken me along on these press things. I yeah. don't know why he drags a composer along. <laughs> I guess I, I'm, More I'm good, people shit that we get to chat to them. Uh, but I've seen him be pretty rough on... So yeah, you touch were, wood, touch wood. I got there in the he end. He liked you. And That's... kind of like, yeah, we, we had a good time and he came and did the podcast and he was, yeah, he was, he was great. He's... Yeah. Don't, don't ever ask him. So, what did you mean when, he, <laughs> yeah, when he sticks his hand up inside her stomach and yeah, what's that all about? Don't yeah, ever ask no. that. He'll go. What do you think? It's yeah, because I asked that question. <laughs> that was the answer I got. I'm excited for the the TV series that he's just done. That you've just done the um, music yeah. for as well. We've not got that yet. Yes. Till to die. I'm excited for that. Me too. Is it, you finished it? I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> 
I'm out of there. It was like a year. Was and it? That's, it's long. It's like 16 hours. Oh, wow. 10 episodes that average about 90 minutes a piece. So, yeah, it's... That's great. Yeah, it's more Nicholas Reffin than you could have ever dreamed of. Great. <laughs> streaming into your house. <laughs> Can't wait. We had um, Todd Phillips on the show uh, talking about war dogs and working with you. Man, he loved you. Wow. His words were, I, I wrote it down, I've quoted it. The thing that Cliff really does is he plays the tone of the film. There you go. He doesn't need all that big stuff. He just is able to get to the tone of the film straight away. Which I imagine with a film like that, though, because he uses, he uses big pieces of known needle drops. Like, you know, he uses those big tracks and... He told us this funny story about wanting to use a Guns N' Roses track, but they wanted like 805 million for it or something ridiculous. But, you know, he pay, plays those big tracks that you know. And so does that make it harder or easier as a composer to not make your music fit, but it's got a different purpose, but getting that balance right? Is that hard? I, I think in the case of War Dogs, it's, it's harder. I mean, there's different types of needle drop scores, and it mostly has to do with the ratio yeah. of, for example, Drive, I think five songs, four of which were all in this sort of 80s synth pop realm. So I think the the power of that score was that, okay, well, that's a, there was the one opera piece, which is, was kind of the black sheep of the, of the musical family. But because four of the songs sounded like they could have been written by the same band, mm -hmm. It was easy, easier for me to make a score that complemented that style of yeah. approach, whereas War Dogs was a lot more needle drops. Um, maybe there were more needle drops than there was score, but the, the flavor of it is that it is a song-driven score. So when that happens, you can't really make a score that, that relates to, unless yeah. I didn't feel that War Dogs was particularly centered on a on an era or a style mm -hmm. it was just bit of everything it, 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 it was just a, a big variety of stuff so you kind of give up on making a score that complements or or works with the score
I think it's one thing I like to do, which you can't do in a score like War Dogs, is I like for the score to have a unified style, approach, flavor, sound. So you hear like two notes and you go, oh yeah, that's Cliff Martinez trying to sound like Thomas Newman. Um, um, or, I mean, Thomas Newman is one of those guys, you hear like three notes, you go, ah, it's Thomas Newman or somebody trying to sound like Thomas Newman, which happens. But um, that's really, really hard, if not impossible to do on yeah. a real eclectic song-driven score. But oftentimes it's it's less music you know, I just got to get used to the fact that, okay, you're not going to have this cohesive recipe that complements the songs. You got to do something else. Another thing that was unique about War Dogs, I thought, was I've always wanted to do something that was lighter mm -hmm. and comedic. And when I heard that Todd was interested and this is the guy that did The Hangover, I was like, oh, finally. I've been like bugging my agent for decades. Yeah. Like, But oddly, I felt like Philip Glass in that I just keep, or Taco Bell, where you just keep doing the same thing. <laughs> and it's just the context is different, you know. It's like, okay, you're still going to get like a tortilla and grated cheese and shredded lettuce and ground beef. Please don't compare yourself to Taco Bell. <laughs> so, so I kind of did the same thing, which was kind of refreshing. And then and then when I worked on uh, Game Night, Night, yeah, yeah. kind of the same thing. In fact, they were more they were more specific in their direction. They said, Cliff, just be yourself. Don't try to be funny. That's our job. <laughs> and uh, and then I saw Jason Bateman in in Ozark. Mm. I was like, well, they should just call his character Jason in, in in both films because he's kind of the same guy. The difference is location. It's you know, people get shot, stabbed, and killed. But in Game Night, that's funny. <laughs> <laughs>
Hotel Artemis. Well, that wasn't comedic. I mean... There were a couple of funny bits. That, that was a, actually, that was a, a tone puzzle in a way. Because yeah. it had a campy element to it. Yeah. That you had to let the audience know that mm, not everything is totally serious. Yeah, and we're not taking ourselves too seriously. And somehow that, that can be a challenge too. Because you're, you're not going to do anything overtly comical. But there is a playful, pulpy tone to it that I think you have to arrive at with the music. And sometimes the ones that are neither fish nor fowl are, are, are trickier than the, the things that are more broadly comedic, like, yeah. such as Game Night. to the UK and bring your wonderful music to, I don't know, one of our theatres or do something like that. We'd love to see you do that. You mean perform? Yeah. Well, that's my new... For years, I thought I would never, ever want to perform live again because after the Chili Peppers, which was kind of my like my own personal Vietnam, <laughs> I just thought, I, I, never, I don't care if I ever get in front of an audience ever again. Lately, I felt like, yeah, maybe I want to do that. So I just took a, a course on performing of electronic music because I've had some offers at these European film festivals or film yeah. music festivals to perform with the orchestra. I said, I, I don't play anything. You know, I play drums, but <laughs> that, that's not going to send the line around the block. See, that will kind of blow people's minds knowing and loving the music you've created for all these films and you turn and go, I don't play anything, but you do. Yeah. Yeah, I play space bar. I hit the space bar and I do that for two hours. Can I can I get a paycheck for that? So I'm playing. I'm working on playing some Fantastic. stuff. Fantastic. And uh, I, I don't know about the UK because I haven't been hit up for a festival there. But uh, I've been to Spain. I've been to. I'm going to Prague mm -hmm. in January. You're in a crack of hat. Great. Krakow was great. Yeah. Uh, Belgium was great. So. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of odd. It's like um... we'll have a word with Glastonbury. Okay. See if they can get that would be amazing. Yes. If they played, oh, do you know what would be great is if we if they like if they played the film in one of their big cinema tents that they have, and you did the score live as the film played. Well, that might. Which film would you do? That might be pretty ambitious. I mean, I, what they've done at the festivals is kind of a Whitman sampler of. Mm -hmm. You know, a little bit of cliff goes a long way. So they, they haven't done, they haven't like featured me, but they yeah. usually have like a suite that's like 10 minutes. Yeah. And uh, that's what I kind of envision starting with. And yeah. maybe if I get a big head and, or if it goes over well, then maybe I'll do like, maybe then I'll consider like, oh, I'm headlining. I'm going to do, do an hour <laughs> of this crap and you're going to, and you're going to like it. Oh, we would. Or an entire film. I mean, I, this was an eight week course and, and we were asked to do, two compositions it was so much work i mean i'm sure it'll get easier but god i love it you've like gone back to school playing, well 
when people say, what's the biggest challenge in your career? It's like, well, that's easy. It's aging, <laughs> you know? I mean, <laughs> try beating aging, you know? You can't really, but by that I mean is staying passionate and enthusiastic mm. and engaged in what you do. And, and that involves learning, which is inconvenient and, and uh, time consuming. And it t- takes, your, takes up time. Mm. But so I'm thinking that live performing may be the, the latest wrinkle in kind of keeping this, this business called show interesting for me. <laughs> Great. I look forward to it. Um, thank you so much for your time and, in, and allowing us to come here and chat to us today. Oh, Thanks my pleasure. And please clean me up so that I'm sharp, witty, <laughs> always, and above all, uh, handsome. <laughs> Thanks, Claire. From the score to drive, that's Kick Your Teeth, rounding off this latest episode of Soundtracking with composer Cliff Martinez. My huge thanks to Cliff for taking the time to talk to us and for inviting me into his beautiful home and studio. It really was an absolute thrill to meet him. We'll put a Spotify playlist up for the show via edithbowman.com featuring the music we played in the order it appeared. And my website is also the place to catch up with all of our previous episodes, including those conversations with Stephen Soderbergh, Nicholas Winden-Refn, Todd Phillips and Drew Pearce. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We are at Soundtracking UK. And please do keep spreading the word if you like what you hear. Next up, we have the fantastic British director, Jan Demange, as our guest. I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then.